This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 216 for Monday, January 17, 2011. Archaeoastronomy. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Fraser. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It is uh, still really cold and snowy, so... Uh, <laughs> Can't go outside yet, but uh, it's going to be changing soon. Okay, so this week, we don't have a lot of time, so we got to roll. The sun, moon, stars, and planets are visible with the unaided eye, and so there have been astronomers before recorded history. But some of the earliest records we do have tell us what the ancient astronomers thought about the heavens and how they use the changing night sky in their daily lives. Let's look at archaeoastronomy. Archaeoastronomy, it's like it's like archaeology and astronomy. It's Is it... Is it archaeologists who like astronomy or is it astronomers who like archaeology it's actually one of those bad interdisciplinary fields where everyone lays claims to it and so you really have to be good at all of it to be good at the field right you have you have even anthropologists get thrown into the mix but that then becomes a word no one can say sort of an indiana jones with a telescope right exactly yeah or a Neil deGrasse Tyson with a bullwhip? No, it's... Not so much. Too much information. Okay. Uh, so, right. So then can you give us some examples then of what would sort of, you know, are we talking about buildings, documents? What is archaeoastronomy? It, generally, it's a matter of talking about something that is physically built that allows you to use the structure itself to make predictions, to make measurements about sky phenomena. So the classic examples are the spiral and dagger that is seen uh, near Chaco Canyon in the American Southwest. This is a place where sunlight passing between two rocks makes a dagger of light that on different special days of the year either appears just beside a spiral on one side or the other or pierces it directly through the center. And these alignments only occur on the solstices and equinoxes oh but this isn't a natural like a natural structure some no. hard-working rock chiselers <laughs> went out and actually figured out the math lined things up and then cut the holes well this is actually probably something that required even more patience than that where someone noticed hey these two rocks make this dagger of light let's mark in whatever the stone age equivalent of pencil is the location of that dagger on this equinox on that equinox well the equinoxes will be in the exact same place but on the winter solstice and on the summer solstice and then very carefully once they had figured out where the dagger was on these three extremes streams of most northern, most southern, and central position, let's carve a spiral into the rock to denote when those locations occur. Because I've, you know, I've never seen this. So, I mean, maybe you can kind of give people a, a picture of what this, maybe the people in the U.S. are more familiar with it, but, you know, I've never seen even a picture of this. What does it look like? So you, you're looking at a rock and, uh, well, it's the inside of a cave and 
the way the sunlight comes through, there's a spiral pattern carved into the rock. And just like any spiral, there's a central point and then it curves outwards and forms basically, it's round. And on the winter and summer solstices, the dagger of light appears just touching one edge or the other of the spiral. And then on the equinox and both equinoxes, the sun is in the exact same place. That dagger of light pierces exactly through the center. Wow. So can you give us some other examples? I mean, there's some pretty famous ones, right? Stonehenge, the pyramids. Those are the two big ones that everyone points to. And what's interesting about Stonehenge in particular is it's it's an example of where we do archaeoastronomy without having any social context for trying to understand what we're looking at. Archaeoastronomy, there, there's two general ways to do it. You either start from, I have giant something I don't understand, and you try and find astronomy references within it using statistics, or you start from the, I know Venus was culturally very important to this society, and you look for references to that particular thing that you know is important. So you're either looking for astronomy within the context of the society, or you're trying to find astronomy to give you context to the society. So these are two different ways of doing it. And Stonehenge is the, wow, this is kind of awesome. I wonder if it lines up with anything. And it was very quickly realized that, yes, there are summer solstice alignments with the heel stone in Stonehenge. And um, people have since then been looking for all the other possible alignments that you can find between stand here, look there. Ah, look, there's the sun, a planet, a star. And so and so what is the event like if you wanted to go to Stonehenge on the on the right day and really appreciate <laughs> its you know use as a astronomical tool uh, what where what what day and what will you be seeing well the the big day to go to it that uh, everyone goes to it and um, I, I've been there the day after but not the day of is the summer solstice And this is because of the sun's rising position uh, directly over the heel stone. The place, Stonehenge is a lot smaller than you think of it. The rocks are huge. The circle is huge. But the place that it's located is wedged between the north and south or east and west. I forget which direction. Directions of the highway. And <laughs> I've been there too, yeah. It, it's kind of odd. So you'd be crammed into this area between the two directions of the highway, along with a lot of people who smoke interesting things. Right. And potentially are dressed as druids or Wiccans. And then, of course, you have all the photographers who are there and all the scientists who are there. And so it's, it's highly chaotic. But nonetheless, it's the type of thing where looking at the photos and then being there the day after or the day before can give you a real appreciation for that is a giant, well-aligned rock and make you just wonder, how is it that the ancient people were able to do the things that they did? Because whatever it was, making sure that rock was lined up with the sun on the summer solstice was clearly very important to them. Right. It's one of these things where... We can't even figure out exactly how they moved these rocks. And then the idea of using a system of pulleys and logs and rope, basically, you dig a hole, dig a hole, dig a hole, stand the stone upright in the hole, 
And once it's standing up, you're looking at needing the entire village to be able to to adjust how it's standing in that hole. And it's a perfect alignment. Uh, so the Stonehenge is one great example. And, and I talked about the pyramids as well, which is, again, at an even grander scale. And with the pyramids, it's it's potentially even a double alignment. So you have on one hand the direction the directions of the pyramids are exactly lined up with the cardinal points, and this is to within all observable limits of the human eye. For, sorry, cardinal points. What does that mean? North, south, east, and west. Oh, okay. So so what is it? The the corners are north, south, east, and west. The sides. So if you draw a line from two corners. You'll go north-south, and if you draw a line through the other corners, you'll go east-west? Exactly. Okay. So one of the really neat things that you can do with the pyramids is just go to Google Maps and type in Pyramids of Giza. And when you look at them, you can see, wow, the edges are exactly north-south, exactly east-west. And then when you look at the big pyramids, the three big ones, they form this slope. And... When you look at them, yeah, you can go, okay, they're exactly lined up neatly on the diagonals. But the other thing that a lot of people say is they were actually designed to look like the belt stars of the constellation Orion. So what the ancient Egyptians were actually building was the belt of Orion when they put these three pyramids where they put them. Now, it's not known for certain if this is exactly what was intended, but it's just one of those neat things to look at in Google Maps and go, huh, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they had more time, built more pyramids, then you know they could have had the shoulders and the feet and the sword <laughs> and the you know and the shield. So so yeah, they, I guess they just didn't really commit. Well, considering how big those suckers are, I, I'm not sure that you really need to worry about commitment issues. H- have you ever seen them? Yeah, I was actually there. We we actually left. Uh, Alexandria two hours before the New Year's Eve bombing. So I was there, and if I can find the picture, we can post a picture of me, a camel, and a pyramid up on our website. But they're, they're really quite impressive to see. But if you do visit the pyramids, take a tour guide who speaks Arabic and will stick to your side because the pyramids are surrounded by people who are going to try and sell you things, and it, it's yeah. very overwhelming. Yeah, you got to learn uh, La Shukran. So thank you, I think it was. <laughs> so, okay, great. So so the pyramids are another one. But, I mean, there are ancient buildings around the whole world designed for astronomy. I mean, this is these are just a few examples. Let's have some more. So the, the other really neat example that I particularly like to use is there's, I'm going to mispronounce it, it's the Chichen Il... It's a Chichen Itza? It's, yes. Ch- I can't say Chichen Itza? Chichen Itza? Yes. Chichen Itza? I'm just going to let you say the word for me. <laughs> sure. It's, it's this ancient observatory. And when you look at it, you're like, wow, that, that's an observatory built out of stone, except the dome doesn't rotate. And it's a building that was set up with slits in the dome that allow you to see when different things line up. And... So the the way the dome is designed, it, it's not good for letting in light, but it is good for saying, aha, that is lined up there now, therefore I know when I am. And so it's in, it's in Mexico, right? It's, it's in Mexico, and it has a, a lot of sites on it that 
are related to the planet Venus. This is an old Mayan relic. Uh, Venus is one of the particularly important stars, whether it was not stars, planets, whether it was up as a evening object or a morning object. And one of the neat things about Venus is you can trace its pattern on the sky by taking observations at the same time every day. And depending exactly on where Venus and Earth are in their orbits, you get different snake-like patterns. And so the path of Venus on the sky from night to night to night during each of its appearances is traced out in a whole variety of different Mayan relics. Oh, okay, I see. And so they would, they would take that path that you would trace and then they would they would make it look like a snake and have it be embedded in some other object. Right. So huh. it was often a feathered serpent and this was how they viewed it. And it's it's one of those things where you've you've got to imagine how they tried to piece together what Venus was because it's this object that only appears and it was two different objects to them. Right. It it only appears either right after sunset or right before sunrise and it's so amazingly bright but it never hangs around the entire night and both objects are never up at the exact same time and so it was seen as two different sides of of basically a god depending on which culture you were in but some of them did figure it out i mean they realized right. that it you know it spends some time in the night and then it spends some time in the morning and then it's you know and it really sort of time, you know lines up but you know so if you were going to use chichen itza then you would be able to to what like see through a hole at a certain time and see venus and then be able to know oh okay it is you know this day in the mayan calendar well we're still trying to figure out how you use it that's one of the problems that we run into this this is an example of where we're understanding astronomy within the culture of the people. So we look at the building, we see the orientations of the building relative to north, south, east, and west. We look at the carvings in the building. We see references to Venus. We look at the slots. You can tell the slots are designed for lining things up, and we're not entirely sure what. It's It's a challenge. We're still trying to figure out all these different details. We do know that there are places where if you're standing on the right platform and you're looking past the right pillar, it lines up with Venus when it's an evening or a morning star. But it's not particular to a time on the Mayan calendar. It's not necessarily particular to a certain orbit, but the alignments are there. Hmm. So then I guess what do I'm kind of, you know, astronomers would look at this from one point of view, I guess, and they would say, you know, what does, you know, what did they know then, right? What parts of modern astronomy did the ancient people have figured out? The, you know, the earth was round and so on. But I can imagine the archaeologists going the other way and saying, what do these things tell us about the people? And and this is where it ends up being two different areas of archaeoastronomy with things like the Natska lines, which are these giant lines in the Atacama Desert that trace out spiders and geometric figures. Yeah, Google map them. I mean, you can see them. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, can you give a better description? Because, I mean, that's they are like these enormous, almost like 
roadways ground into the desert in you know the Atacama Desert visible from huge altitudes and these really elaborate shapes. They're quite amazing. And the thing about the Nazca lines is you have to be in an airplane to see them. There's a monkey, there's a spider, there's a chicken, there's all sorts of crazy geometric shapes, there's birds, and no one's quite sure why. Mm -hmm. And the way they're made, different scientists have tried to replicate them, and it's actually not that hard once you figure out how you want to shape the lines. It's just a matter of going through and moving the stones to make the shape you want. So if you can imagine making crop circles or something, all you need is rope and something to bash down the corn and you can make any shape you want, but you can't see what shape you're making while you're in the cornfield. Natska lines are the same thing. All you need is rope and a plan and you can make any shape you want just by moving rocks around. And so... In trying to figure out why, one of the theories that was come up with was, well, maybe the head of the spider lines up with something. Maybe the tail of the monkey lines up with something. And so people have looked for astronomical alignments. And what's been realized is if you take any one place to stand and any one thing to line up with on the horizon – and you run simulations, you can always find at least one day of the year that a really bright star planet aligns with that particular position and place on the horizon. And that makes understanding a lot of this stuff hard because you have to ask yourself what's chance and what's on purpose. Yeah, I mean, is that likely? I mean, could you you know, take any object? Could I take the, you know, a kid's jungle gym and stand at the various corners of it outside and and line up with stars and planets? I mean, is it unlikely that you're going to get that kind of a situation? If you start to narrow it down and say an alignment only on the solstices or equinoxes, if you start to say only with planets, if you start to say only with certain stars of known ethnic importance. So like the star Cirrus has importance in several societies. Then it starts to become a matter of no, a chance alignment isn't likely. But if you open it up to any day of the year and any star that is third magnitude or brighter, you can pretty much find an alignment with anything if you Mm -hmm. open up the calendar wide enough. But I think you, you touched upon something that's really important there, which is that if you find a some kind of structure and it lines up with Sirius, for example, perfectly on the summer, on the winter solstice, maybe. Then, then that really tells you that Sirius is important to that culture, and right. then you can start digging to find some references to it. So you can see how how the the archaeology will help you, you know, and then knowing the astronomy will then help you find something out about the culture. And this is where it's been so neat looking at Mayan ruins and seeing those snakes that mark out the path of Venus in the sky. And this is where it's been so frustrating with Stonehenge trying to figure out, well, there's been 165 different alignments found, and there's a 50-50 probability that that's chance. Oh. And so trying to figure out what's chance and what's real 
and things like there's a set of holes at Stonehenge, the Aubrey holes. And you can come up with all sorts of crazy ways to move rocks from one Aubrey hole to the other Aubrey hole that could predict solar eclipses, lunar eclipses, Saras cycles. And it's just a matter of, well, what do we know? Very little. What is possible? A whole lot. And trying to infer, well, what was it actually used for? Here are our best guesses. And we can only go as far as our best guesses. So it's frustrating. I can imagine it's almost like a typewriter where there's all the keys are on it and there's any combination of keys that you could be mashing. But obviously, if you're a writer, you can make words. But it's hard to know if you don't know what the outcome was. It's hard to know how they were using it because it's so flexible with all of the holes that you could indeed predict almost anything you wanted if you were using it right. But at the same time, it could just be that they just banged holes in them and thought they looked good. And and this is one of those things where an understanding of statistics becomes very important. It's very easy to say, well, because this city is laid out like a grid with roads going north-south and east-west, clearly the equinoxes are very important to this city. No, we're just boring. It's the Midwest. We lay things out as grids. Right. And it's it's easy to infer a lot of stuff. And then if you take it one step further and say, and this Queen Anne Victorian house that has four chimneys, because these chimneys happen to line up with the rising of Gemini with, and and you can come up with all of this different stuff. And suddenly you've created a culture that is a cult of Gemini. Right. And you have to step back and say, okay, what is the probability in general of this happening by chance? What are all the other possible things that could have happened? And it's it's just like uh, the work that Simon Singh has done pointing out that with the the Bible code, you can also take Moby Dick and find all sorts of things predicted in it just by looking for chance alignments of words. Right. And I think this is where this whole endeavor just leads into pseudoscience and madness because, as you said, you can use almost anything to predict anything. And so then you can then sort of retrofit it back in and say, well, you know, see, the Stonehenge predicted the the great fire of London and it predicted the, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you're using it right, but it's hard to know whether or not a person is using it right, you can predict almost, almost anything. So, so I, I know that a lot of the, you know, 2012 predictions, Mayan calendar, Nostradamus, all that kind of stuff totally relies on that, on this, there's so many different ways that you can examine it. It could be nothing. It could be it could be an astronomical tool. Who knows? I mean, you know, you you skirted the issue, right? But with the Nazca lines, you know, if you can make a picture big enough for an, only an airplane could see, then they must have had airplanes, you know, right? And, and hot air balloons or aliens. But yeah. no, I mean, they might have just said, "Let's make some great big pictures because it's cool and fun." And, you know, and it shows that I'm rich. Right. 
And this is, this is where we can come up with some good conclusions. We know that there are things that definitely align with the solstices. There is the marking of the summer solstice at Stonehenge, at Newgrange in Ireland. There's a clear marking of winter solstice. With the sun dagger, we have the solstices and the equinox all clearly marked in the American Southwest. We can tell that human beings like to line things up with north, south, east, and west. It's just something we do. As someone who lives in Canada, I can tell you that when the days start to get longer, it is a good thing. (laughs) You know, you want to know that finally we're done having shorter nights. Now it's time to have longer ones. So I can see why, you know, a winter solstice was a, was, you know, an important thing and not that complicated, right? You, you know, you can figure it out pretty easily by looking at the shadows every day. And eventually you'll, you'll home in on, on the shortest and the longest days of the year. And to get much beyond these solar alignments and these cardinal direction alignments, it starts to require us to know something about the cultures. So when we look for alignments with the pyramids, there's actually windows that only the light of certain stars on certain days do pass through, and they were culturally important. With the Mayans, we see Venus replicated. So this is where when we start looking for the alignments that are statistically harder to prove you have to understand the culture you're working within and so archaeoastronomy is is a very rich and complicated field where sometimes you're just left going huh that's interesting but i can't prove it and other times you're left going wow i see the same thing over and over and over and wow they could observe venus and i bet with with modern computers that's really helped crunch a lot of these numbers as you said with statistics you've got to you know if you can take this thing model it in a computer and then compare it against the night sky and just start running simulations you can start to tease out a statistical anomaly and say oh yeah look at that you know it does work for the solstice or the you know the the cartesian coordinates And where this has become particularly useful is the sky isn't where it was when the pyramids were built. That's right, yeah. The sky isn't where it was when Stonehenge was built. And so that's right. So the the position of the of the stars, the precession of of the Earth's tilt has changed all that. And so they line up with where they were, right? Exactly. And yeah. and so this is one of the things that makes the pyramids particularly amazing at how well pointed they are. There wasn't a North Star when they built the pyramids. They had to actually stand there, watch, figure out, based on the rotations of the stars, where the North Pole was. And that's a hard set of observations to make. But nonetheless, they made them and precisely aligned these giant structures. Wow. All right. Well, that was great, Pamela. Thanks a lot. Well, it was my pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. 
Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.